All right. Well, uh, handouts are on the table, so make sure you, you got one of those. Uh, last week, we kind of did uh, sort of an introduction to resurrection, right? We saw that, uh, well, one of the things we're going to focus on for a few weeks is the idea, really, that resurrection is the central biblical hope for humanity, right, of what God is going to do for us someday. And we talked sometime some last week about what resurrection is and what it isn't, right? Resurrection is a specific term for, it's, it's not a vague term for the afterlife. It refers to the body being raised back up and given new life after death. And we kind of trace this through the, the history. The, it starts showing up towards the end of the Old Testament and the prophets in some places. Uh, in a lot of ways, a response to persecution and martyrdom. Right? There's this question of how can God be faithful to those who are faithful even to the point of death? Right? If they die for their faith and we believe God is faithful, well, can God do anything? And, and so it came to be understood. God was revealing that you know, this is how God is, is going to be faithful. And so as you get to the first century, the time of the New Testament, resurrection is just the standard belief for the, the Jewish people. Aside from a few groups that uh, didn't, didn't believe in it, but that's what most people believed is what God was going to do. And we also saw last week that this, this idea of resurrection, uh, we can contrast that with Greek philosophy, especially, uh, particularly uh, Plato and his, uh, the belief that kind of comes from that school that says that, right, really what we are is this immortal soul and we're trapped in this human suit, right? The body is a prison that ultimately we want to escape. So the real you, that soul, can float off to the heavens or, or something else, right? So in the Greek view, uh, everything material, things you can touch, things you can see, those things are kind of bad. They're, they're actually not as real, right? The real things is this world of ideas and forms. Uh, and so that's what we want to be a part of. Right, that's the Greek view. The Jewish view, uh, the scriptural view, is that the body and the earth and the created world is good. Right? That's first page, Genesis 1. God created everything and called it good. Uh, and so that includes us too. And, and we also saw in the creation story that uh, the soul is not like this, the real part of a person. The soul is a, a way of describing the whole person. It involves the body and the spirit. And so you see in Genesis 2 is when God puts those together, uh, Adam is referred to as a living soul. Right? And, and sometimes that word gets used in slightly different ways through Scripture, because different writers uh, are talking about it in different ways. But generally, that's the idea, right? That there's not a real you trapped in a body, but that your body is actually an, an important part, an essential part of who you are. And yet, that Greek view, that you know, the soul is the real you, that is very much in our culture still today. And in a lot of ways, it influenced the church, right? And, and so we can see a lot of ways that that has affected the way we look at ourselves and even the way we look at our bodies is somehow fundamentally flawed instead of fundamentally good, right? Now, as we can all know, and we've, probably, we've already mentioned with our prayer requests, that doesn't mean bodies are perfect. And that's going to be one of the issues that comes up as we get into the chapter we're going to look at today and next week. But I just wanted to, as we're kind of getting... Recapping and talking about this, I wanted to read this quote here. Uh, This is from a guy named Justin Martyr. He lived in the second or third century, so really just about a hundred years after Paul, uh, and was a a church leader. 
And he had here's something that he wrote here where he's talking to, to someone about Christians and what uh, true Christians believe. He says, I pointed out to you that some who are called Christians but are godless and pious heretics teach doctrines that are in every way blasphemous, atheistical, and foolish, who say there is no resurrection of the dead and that their souls when they die are taken to heaven. Do not imagine that they are Christians. Right? Now he says if, if you don't believe in the resurrection, bodily resurrection, and you just think the soul goes to heaven, that you're not a Christian. But in my experience, that's kind of what a lot of Christians believe. And so you can see that there, there was that tension for a while that, that went on. And so the place that in, in the New Testament where you see this tension the most, and really a good explanation of how all this works, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All right, this is Paul's big long chapter on the resurrection. So we're going to spend a couple of weeks just here. So you're not going to have to turn around, turn over in your Bible to a lot of different places. So I'm being nice to you. Uh, <laughs> and one of the things we also talked about last week is that this this disbelief or misunderstanding of resurrection is, in a lot of ways, the the major underlying issue in in Corinth. Right? A lot of the things they struggle with throughout this long letter, and they have a lot of things they struggle with come down to a misunderstanding of the body and the soul and how uh, how those fit together and what God is doing with them, right? They very much want uh, this sort of otherworldly sort of spirituality, right? A spirituality that's not really connected to this world or the body, and, and that go, takes them in lots of uh, wrong directions, right? Of, well, if the body doesn't matter, then I can do what I want with it and sleep with who I want to. Or if the body is fundamentally bad, then I shouldn't even sleep with my spouse, right? It goes in all these wrong ways, very different ways, <laughs> different ways of being wrong. And so Paul is always working against that, right? How often in the, this letter he's using the body in, in different ways, right? You all are the body of Christ. Uh, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? We're, we're so familiar with that, we don't see that he's actually doing something to show, yeah, the body is a good thing. You are a, you are the body. You have a body. The Spirit is in the body. Uh, that's all part of this. Right? So in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, at the end, he's not arguing for whether or not you know there's something that uh, survives of you after death, right? They they did believe in that, right? These mostly Greek, uh, now Christians. Uh, that's what they believed in, and that's what they liked, right? So Paul's not arguing whether or not something happens after. He's talking about resurrection of the body specifically. And he focuses a lot, we'll see this, uh, this here, on what, on Jesus, right? What God did in Jesus and his resurrection is the model and the means for what God will do for us, right? So if you want to know what resurrection is, look at Jesus and what you say you already believe about him. Uh, but, with all this, there's implications, right? That's kind of one of the points of this class. Uh, what we believe about the afterlife shapes how we live now. <clears throat> and, you know, the, the two kind of ways, different directions I see this going, is either that the, the end of the story is about escape, or it's about transformation, right? And that, right, that idea of the soul escaping the body and uh, leaving the world behind and God can blow it up or whatever, that's very much an escapist sort of view, right? And if that's your view, you're not really going to take much in this world that seriously, right? You're going to only be concerned about making sure I get out. You'll do enough to make sure you get to do that. But everything else in this world, well, who cares? But if your view is that God is going to transform this world and our bodies, 
you're going to be more invested, right? Because you know it, it matters. And that's going to be his big point. All right. So, uh, actually, before we, we're going to start at the end with the very last verse. Uh, start at the end, a very good place to start. Um, before we get to the, what he says here, does it ever feel like, I don't know, what you do in this world doesn't ultimately matter that much? Or like the things that we spend our time doing, they don't seem to go anywhere, and it seems a little pointless sometimes? Now, when are those moments? Mm-hmm. So as you look back, like, well, what did that accomplish, right? Did that go anywhere? And yeah, some of the ways that we go in our life, we do make mistakes, and that's, that's okay. Uh, that didn't work out. Uh, yeah, parenting, right? I mean, this is... Uh, the day-to-day, like, are we doing anything good to raise them? Because it doesn't seem like they get much better and they're still just <laughs> frustrating constantly, right? So sometimes we're, we're in the middle of the grind uh, and it doesn't feel like the things that we do, when even when we're trying to do good things, it doesn't feel like they're going anywhere. And so this is where this whole message is important. So the very last verse, verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15, says, Therefore... My beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Right? It's a long chapter. He's going to go through a lot of different arguments, but this is where he ends up, right? Therefore always means here's the point, right? The point of all this is what you do when you do it in the Lord, it matters, right? It's not for nothing. Um you know, the, the, the point is, because of the resurrection, what we do in this life, what we do with our, with our body in this world, it's not just all gonna disappear someday. It's, it's, it's gonna go somewhere. And we may not see the fruits of it until we're on the other side of the resurrection. And in fact, this goes back to the famous chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, right? Anything done in love endures because love never fails, right? Love is the one thing that we experience in this life and we'll experience in the next life. Right? We don't need faith or hope at that point, but we'll still have love, right? Even that chapter is still part of this same discussion, the same argument, right? So if, if the resurrection is true, then what we do matters. And if it's not, then uh, maybe it doesn't. All right, so let's start at the beginning now, <laughs> where we should start. So I'll read uh, just verses, verses 1 and 2. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received, in which you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. And then from there, verses 3 to 11, he kind of lays out the gospel, right? This is what I received, and I handed it on to you uh, about Jesus' death and resurrection and who saw him, and kind of how Paul came late to the game, um, so, right, this is, this is what you believe, right? This is not new information to these Corinthians, right? He's laying out the gospel, but it's, he's, it's reminding them, right? You said you believe this, right? When you committed your life to Christ and were baptized, right? Uh, it's not even unique to me, Paul is saying, right? I didn't come up with this. This was given to me and I gave it to you. And you said you believe it, right? Uh, so, but his point is kind of, so what changed, right? You said you believe this. What, what's going on? Some of the things we see in this, it, you'll notice whenever it talks about the resurrection of Jesus, it's always passive in the passive tense, right? God raises Jesus from the dead. Jesus doesn't raise himself. Uh, it's an act of, of God. Um, 
And it says also in there that he appeared to, uh, you know, Peter and the apostles and others. And that could be vague, right? Uh, appearing, right? Could have been like a ghost or a vision of some sort. But I think Paul's point is you can go to talk to any of these people and they would tell you that Jesus rose with a body, right? He wasn't a ghost or just a spirit. Uh, it was really him, even though uh, he was different. In a few weeks, we'll talk about actual resurrected body of Jesus and what that means. And he also talks about, right, uh, unless this is all in vain, unless this is all pointless, verse 2 and verse 10, which is probably pointing to that last verse that we already looked at, right? About, is this all pointless or not? Is this in vain? Um, right? If, if you don't still believe this, then maybe this is all pointless and we should just, we should just stop, right? So his point there is, this is what you said you believe, right? So, do you still believe it? Alright. And like I said, I'm not gonna get into all the details there because there's not as much about the resurrection here. Alright. Let's keep going. We're gonna pick up in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, right, that's what he just said, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pity. I didn't count, but he uses the word if a lot in there, right? Uh, he's using logic here, right? If you say this, then this is true. And if that's true, then this is true, right? But if this is true, then that's true, right? Uh, this is the way Paul, Paul argues things sometimes. So, right, the underlying issue here is our, our future resurrection, right? Bodily resurrection of, of all believers in the future, not the past resurrection of Jesus, right? They're not actually arguing that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Paul's point is, if you deny one, you're denying the other, right? If you say there's no resurrection, then you can't believe that Jesus died and, and rose again, right? Uh, it's, it's logically doesn't make sense. If the dead are not raised, uh, that includes Jesus. Um, and they're, but they're not put off by this idea that it's something that happens in the future. They're put off by the idea that it's the body, right? Again, coming from that Greek mindset, uh, the created world, the body, the material, everything material is, is bad. Well, why would you want to raise the body, right? Wouldn't it be nice to be done with that? I mean, can you understand that? Why would, why might people be put off by the idea of raising a body from the dead. I mean, what, what are some other images that come to mind that are less pleasant? Zombies, right? Yeah, Gary talked about those a couple weeks ago, right? I mean, there's plenty of stories in pop culture today of uh, the walking dead, right? Like, and maybe that's how they heard that, right? They're not, uh, for all these Greek Christians uh, in Corinth, they're not coming with this Jewish background like Paul has. So when they hear corpses rising from the dead, yeah, they're probably going to think more like zombies. So, well, why would you want that? I don't know, why else would you not want a body to be raised? Okay, yeah, right? Our bodies are flawed, and this he'll get into this a little more specifically later on, right? Well, right, we... <laughs> yeah, look it in the mirror. Why do I, yeah, why do I want this? Uh, yeah, right? In varying ways, we all have 
body issues probably. And so yeah, you, you can understand the line of thinking that says, why not just be done with this thing and not have to deal with it anymore, right? We can understand that. Um, and that, that's probably where some of them are coming from. And so he's trying to get, help them get past that. And like I said, that gets more into the later half of the chapter we'll see next week when he talks specifically of, okay, what is this body like? Because if it were just, okay, you die, whatever age you die, and then that exact body and whatever state it was in comes back. Well, that's not very pleasant. But that's not what resurrection is. Right? Yeah, that's, we'll get into that next week, the, the nature of the body. But yeah, no, that's good because you're, you're anticipating where his argument is going to go, right? What, what kind of body, right? I think that's verse 34 or 35. So, um, now along with this, right, you say there's lots of implications if resurrection is not true. One of them, verse 17, um, you're still in your sins, right? If Christ has not been raised. What he's saying is that if um, the dealing with sin, Jesus, it required both the death and the resurrection, right? Very often what I seem to hear, especially like at the Lord's Supper, is it's, it's only about the death, right? It's just the death of Jesus that we needed to deal with the problem of sin. Um, but Paul seems to be saying, I mean, obviously you need the death, but the resurrection is part of that story too, part of our salvation. Right? I think he's, again, we'll see this, towards the end more, the idea that, that Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, I think it has a bigger impact than maybe even we understand sometimes, that it doesn't just manage that problem of sin, but it does something even, it does do that, but it does more for humanity, right? That's, we're getting, we'll get to that in a little bit though. All right, there's implications for all creation, um, not just humanity. He also says, verse 18, if there's no resurrection, then those who've died in Christ already, and they're, they're gone, right? He says they're perished, uh, which that's, that's going to be something we come back to a, a bit later of why he would say perish instead of say that they're burning in hell, right? Uh, that tends to be the language that Paul uses. Now, he also says, verse 19, if it's just for this life that we hope in Christ, people should pity us. Now, I don't know, you could maybe push back against that a little bit, right? I mean, doesn't that imply that sort of escapism that, that I was talking about earlier? Well, it's only about the next life, right? Is Do you think that's what he's saying? Um, does this hope that we have in Christ, does it still matter for this life? What, what do you think he's saying there in verse 19? I think, yeah, that if we lose that eternal hope, then, then we are missing a big part of it. That's not to deny the fact that, yes, this life still matters, right? The life that we have now on earth and the life that we'll have someday, those should fit together. They shouldn't be working against each other or be somehow opposed to each other, but right, it's, it's this idea of a goal that we're building towards something. Right? And that's what resurrection is really about. Um, so he doesn't say that the hope we have doesn't, right? We have hope in this life, and that's a good thing. Um, but it's not just about this life. And it, I guess the contrast is it's not just about the next life either, because right? that's how I hear some people say, all right, this world doesn't really matter. It's just a test to make sure you get into that place that really matters. No, they both matter, and that seems to be the real story. All right, let's pick up in verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For, since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For, as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, 
Then comes the end, when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after He has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under Him so that God may be all in all. All right, Paul gets pretty wordy sometimes. There's a lot of subjection in there. We'll try and parse out what matters and what's kind of an aside where he's just trying to clarify some stuff. Well, first, though, he talks about this idea, this metaphor of the first fruits. Right? This is a uh, harvest imagery. Right? So if you're uh, planting some wheat, right, the first fruits would be like that first stalk that comes up. And if you're a farmer and you saw that first stalk, you're not going to say, okay, well, I guess I get one stalk of wheat this year. That's it. Right? You see that one, that first fruit, and that would tell you, okay, more is on the way. The crop didn't fail. Right? This is kind of the forerunner. That's what the first fruits mean. Uh, and so that's how he's using this idea of Christ's resurrection. That since we can look to this one, we know there's going to be a resurrection for us, too. Uh, it wasn't a special thing that only Jesus got, but it's something for all humanity, for all believers. Um, so more is coming. Right? That's, we can trust in that. A lot of this, really here he's getting into what it means to be human, right? We talked some about that last week, but here he's talking about our purpose, right? And some of that also goes to, to creation, right? Because he talks some about Adam here. Uh, so you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and it says what, what human beings are created for. Uh, Genesis 1, 26, God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, wild animals, and every creeping thing. Right? That the reason God creates is to give us, there, my, my translation said dominion. Right? And, uh, yours might say something like rule. Uh, I don't know, what, what does that imply to you? To have dominion over creation. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Be responsible. Right? Because you could take dominion in a negative way, of like domination and the idea would be all right well this world's ours we can do what we want with it uh which does sometimes seem to be the attitude but yeah being responsible to to care for it um to be stewards of of this world uh that's what god has created us for so we have a responsibility and very often we we've slacked on that responsibility but god doesn't give up on that right that's what our purpose is Instead of saying, well, that didn't work, God says, okay, how can I redeem this? How can I bring them back to their purpose? This also comes up in Psalm 8. If you want to look at that real quick. Psalm 8. He starts by talking about how majestic God is and how glorious God is above everything. And we look at all the works of God's hands and wonder, you know, what are we that you care about us? But then he says in verse 5, and yet you have made them, him, humanity, a little lower than God or angels and crown them with glory and honor. You've given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet. All right, that's the verse that Paul quotes there in 1 Corinthians. All right? Again, everything is, is under our, our care. Uh, the way 
says it in uh, Genesis 2, is that we are basically to serve and protect creation. Again, we don't always do a great job, but that is uh, God's intent for us. And so, like I said, instead of giving up on that purpose, God finds another way to make that happen. Um, and so through the resurrection, uh, what God intended for humanity is, is achieved because Jesus is humanity's representative. representative, right? The Son of Man, the human one. And so this, this idea of reigning uh, is, is still part of the destiny through Christ. And so we're going to be brought into that as well. Uh, and again, uh, this, this idea of reigning is going to come up, and we'll talk about that more as we think about uh, what we do or our vocation in, in the next life. Uh, but it's a lot of times the Bible seems to bring it back to that idea of caring for things uh, as God would. Uh, he also ta- he used the word here where he talks about Jesus coming in verse 23 or his arrival. Uh, that's a particular word that has a special meaning we'll talk about later, uh, the, the parousia. Uh, we'll unpack that when we look at 1 Thessalonians 4 where he talks about Jesus' return. But uh, it has implications more than just when he shows up. It, it means something to them that we sometimes lose. <clears throat> now back to this idea of reigning. He's talking about in uh, 24 and 25 how Christ is reigning now in some sense, right? When he ascends into heaven uh, and is seated at the right hand of God, he is slowly taking back control of of the earth from these evil powers, right? The rulers, the authorities. And it's always unclear whether that's human rulers or, or spiritual rulers or really somehow that they're working together whether they know it or not. Uh, and so... Christ is taking control back over that, right? And, you know, I know the world <laughs> seems pretty messed up these days, but we can also see there's a lot of ways that since the time of Christ, the world has improved in ways that, you know, in Paul's day, they might not have even imagined. And so we want to take that lightly or take that for granted, but to see that as Christ's reign being worked out uh, very often through through us, through the church. Not that the church is perfect. Um but someday, right, everything is, is going to be in subjection to him. And his whole point with all that uh, stuff about subjection, he said, he's basically saying it's not like God is going to be subject to Jesus, right? But that um, it'll all be under God in the end. And, and so everything's going to be defeated, right? The last enemy to be defeated is death, right? The, again, going back to that, the death of Jesus, it doesn't just deal with sin, it deals with death as well, right? Those, it's kind of a package deal. And so the resurrection is uh, Jesus conquering death. And so death is not just a part of life, it's an enemy, and its days are numbered. And we can praise God for that. Um, now, another word that he uses a lot in here is all, right? So, I don't know, what does it mean when he says uh, all? And especially the last verse there about God being all in all in verse 28. Where do you see that? Where does that uh, raise some questions at least? Verse 22 is, all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Uh, He must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. Verse 25, uh, God has put all things under subjection, in subjection under his feet. Verse 27. Right, and then God will be all in all at the end. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it raises some questions, right? Of, of the scope of 
what God is doing through Christ. And I kind of just, we'll, we'll get into this more later, but um, I think we need to see how big this, this seems to be, be going, right? Yeah, I guess in what sense are these the rulers and the authorities uh, submitting to God, right? What does that look like? Yes, they will, right? Uh, but in what way? No, I don't. But uh, <laughs> we'll definitely, we don't want to keep thinking about this, right? Yeah. It's always, inter- to me, it's just interesting the way we use that word, right? I mean, think of in our country's history, uh, all men are created equal, uh, but literally just men, and actually just white men, and men that have property, right? They did, right? They said all, and they thought they meant that, but as we've come to understand, well, maybe all means more than that, right? So it's just one of those questions I want us to be thinking about uh, as, as we continue through this, the scope of, of what God is doing, right? But to not limit, and especially that, that God may be all in all. I mean, there's, I mean, that's kind of a mysterious phrase, um, but I think we don't want to lose sight of that. That it's this unifying of, of all things, right? Nothing just gets ignored or left out, but God is somehow redeeming all. All right. Uh, starting in verse 29, any other comments or questions about that? Yeah, right. In some sense, we're united with God. Now, that's not the sense of we kind of lose ourselves and our soul is just kind of reunited with God, um, right? The whole point, I think, of resurrection is you're still you in some, uh, in an essential way, even if you are united with God. And so that's kind of the, the mystery of it, that, that we are perfectly united with God and yet, we're still ourselves. You don't lose yourself in that process. Uh, but God is, is fully in all things. All right, well, let's pick up in verse verse 29. Uh, with some questions, uh, more questions that I can't really answer. <laughs> Otherwise, right, so it's all like, okay, the whole point of all this, if you don't believe in resurrection, then, then here's all the, the problems with that. Otherwise, what will those people do who receive baptism on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And why are we putting ourselves in danger every hour? I die every day. That is certain, brothers and sisters, as my boasting to you, a boast that I make in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we had, if with merely human hopes I fought with wild animals at Ephesus, what would I have gained by it? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Come to a sober and right mind, and sin no more. For some people have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Right? I think at the end he's kind of, stop being stupid, uh, is his, his point there. Which is a great way to end. Um, now, obviously, verse 29, he talks about the baptism on behalf of the dead. I don't know exactly what that is. No one really does, but there are different guesses. Um, for one, is Paul okay with it? That's one of the questions. Is this just sort of a rhetorical thing, right? Of He knows they're doing this, and maybe he doesn't agree with it, but he's just trying to point out, why would you do this if you don't believe in the resurrection? Um, but it does seem to be some sort of baptism on behalf of somebody else, which tends, doesn't really make sense with the way we tend to understand b- baptism in the New Testament, that it's uh, someone deciding to do that. Um, I think the Mormons are the ones that have taken this as, as a practice, and so they will be baptized for somebody else. So like Anne Frank has been baptized for like hundreds of times. Um, I don't know. That's, that's kind of odd. I, I see that they're trying to include people, but 
that just seems like a weird thing that God would be like, oh, okay, well, somebody else did it for you, you're in. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of an odd way of understanding it. Um, maybe it was people who were waiting to be baptized, but they died, and so they had they were in the process of making that commitment. We just don't know. Um, it does imply kind of an interim state between you know the earthly death and the coming resurrection, right? That you can still uh, they're not judged yet, so you could pray for them, right? We'll, we'll talk about kind of that inter interim time later on. I don't know any questions or <laughs> thoughts about what Paul could be talking about here. Well, we'll just move on. I mean, generally, we don't want to make a practice out of something that appears in one verse that we don't fully understand. I mean, something like this, is it reminds us that we're reading somebody else's mail, right? Paul knows what he's talking about. The Corinthians knew what he was talking about. And we're hearing one side of a conversation. And so it makes sense that we might not always understand everything that he was saying to them. Um, uh, but most of the time, that's that's not the case. And then he just basically gets into in verses, sorry, in verse 30 about why am I bothering with all this stuff that I'm going through if there's no resurrection, right? Um, why am I putting myself through all this pain if this life is all there is? If this is all there is, then we should just enjoy this life and I'm, I'm not going to try so hard. Uh, and so he has that famous, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Uh, that's a, an idea that's associated with a philosophy called uh, Epicureanism. That's another philosophy that did, they believe there was nothing after this life. Right? So this was all there is. Um, there's not really a, a soul that, that persists afterwards. And, and typically they didn't mean that in like the hedonistic, like let's party and go crazy because that would not make your life pleasant either. But just like be sensible. Let's get together and talk, talk about philosophy. Uh, and because we're going to die someday. Right? That was their idea of a good time. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't want them to do this, right? But it's saying, it's like, if this is what you're saying, then what you're doing doesn't line up with that, right? If you don't believe in the resurrection, then just go home. Stop coming to church and worrying about all this stuff. You know, your time will be better spent just hanging out with friends and eat and drink tomorrow we die, right? And But that's not what he believes, right? So he's saying, no, the reason we do all of this is because we know there is something more. Um, now, ironically, <laughs> that verse does sound a little bit like Ecclesiastes. You know, a few weeks ago we read that about uh, his view was basically, you know, we don't know what happens next. This, this might be all there is, so enjoy this life. Now, I think Ecclesiastes is coming at it from the point of enjoy the blessings that God has given you as a blessing from God, and that's not really what Paul is saying. But it does kind of make sense, right? You can see how both will get to the same place. But I'm sure Paul had read Ecclesiastes, so I wonder, I really wonder what he would have said about, about all that. So again, right, his... Paul's whole point is what you do in this body matters for that body. Right? There's continuity between what happens now and what's going to happen then. And so there are stakes, right? This is not pointless. And, and that's a good thing, right? We don't want to believe that this life is pointless, that our bodies don't matter, and that what we do on this earth, for this earth, for the people on this earth, that they just end when we die, right? Um, we are going to die, and, and you know who knows what lasting legacy we'll see right? that will happen right after us. But it's, it's the hope of resurrection that says, even those things that, that you didn't see the outcome of, or even the people uh, that, that survived you didn't really see the outcome of, we're going to see that in the resurrection. Right? Everything done in love survives somehow. 
That's what the hope of resurrection means. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is really about, um, that it's in light of, of resurrection. Right? It's great for weddings. Um, I think it's also really a good passage for funerals. Right? It's saying, you know, this is not the end for this person. Um, and one day when we see the when perfection comes, the resurrection, I think that's what that, the perfect is there. Um, we're going to see it all clearly, and we'll know fully uh, what we've done, um, which is which is to me very hopeful. So, all right, thanks everybody.